0: Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the Training Ground Podcast with your host, Kevin Barry. Today, Kevin has the pleasure of speaking with James Wagonshoots for episode 16 of the Training Ground Podcast. In this episode, they'll be discussing James's sports science work with U.S. national soccer teams, insight into the academy structure of MLS clubs, understanding what first beat technology is and how to maximize training, his advice to young coaches, his revelation about coaching on a mountain in
1: Argentina, and how to increase joy for youth soccer players and resources for coaches and parents on that subject.
0: Good morning,
2: James, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm okay. Nice to see you.
0: I appreciate you coming on. Thank you.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. So, okay. You can, you can hear me okay?
0: Yeah, perfect. Yeah. No okay. um, are you in Colorado at the moment then? I know you've yeah. been around a little bit.
2: Cool. Yeah, I'm, I have been around a little bit, but uh, Colorado's been kind of the main, the main place for the last 25 years.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Good stuff. Um, I know we first met um, virtually, I guess, through the NSCA um, special interest group on Facebook for soccer specifically, and uh, you'd reached out to talk about uh, joining elite athletes uh, specifically with youth uh, players in the soccer realm. But before we do get into that, can you just give me a little bit of your background like we said, off mic, you have been at a couple of different places and uh, a couple of different roles as well. So can we get into that a little bit?
2: Sure. Yeah, I think it's, it's, uh, it's a journey that's really kind of a, a winding mess and uh, nothing's linear in my, in my history. And I think that's uh, an important part of who I am. And I'm starting to embrace it rather than uh, fight it. <clears throat> I think a lot of people sometimes think that the S&C world is a linear path. Toward whatever that is that they want to achieve or go for, and mine has been anything but. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I I grew up in the Midwest and in Detroit and St. Louis, but found Colorado home in '94. So I guess almost 27 years now of being in and out of the state. Um, but I got involved in exercise science because I was interested in sport. I was interested in how people um, reacted in sport, and just kind of dove into the the science side. And I took an exercise phys class over summer in college once and fell in love with it. Not necessarily the Krebs cycle, but uh, mm-hmm. all the other things associated with helping athletes become better. And so I've always kind of had exercise science in my back pocket, but it's not something that I got into right away. Uh, I actually got into working with Outward Bound and uh, having kids travel all over the western part of the United States and learn a lot of different individual skills through rock climbing and backpacking and kayaking and camping and
1: Mm -hmm.
2: ice climbing and really i think there's an important part of using the outdoors and nature to fuel sport uh, and to connect as much as we can between nature and, and sport and so i spent a bunch of time working for outward bound but eventually um found my way back into Colorado coaching a youth team. And because of my background in exercise science, uh, the club I was working at started to ask me more and more kind of sciencey related questions related to soccer fitness type aspect questions. This was 2005. And so it kind of been on a journey of going through the process of kind of relearning and reeducating myself ended up getting a master's degree in sports medicine with an emphasis in strength and conditioning. And, um, and ever since then, it's been, I've been really fortunate to have multiple experiences, um, United States Olympic Committee, U.S. Army, Air Force, uh, Colorado College, Regis University. And then eventually got put up with a friend who was working with a youth club and uh, they wanted someone to build an athletic performance program for their you know 3000 youth players in their soccer club uh, from scratch and we so that was really kind of the the thrust to dr- you know over the last 9 years now of doing it full time was taking that program building it from the scratch getting interns figuring out things as we go making mistakes learning trying to grow a budget Uh, you know, trying to get consistency down within uh, coach adherence, player compliance, those types of things. And really, uh, so because of that, I needed to make a lot of connections. I needed to find out, like, who can help me uh, and who is willing to help, uh, who also is open-minded and willing to share. And I just started knocking on doors and making phone calls. And um, I feel like I've been really, really Uh, blessed with opportunities to meet various people along the way. And probably the most influential person has been Bill Knowles, who's a reconditioning expert based in Philadelphia, uh, who's worked with elite athletes for the last 30 years. And I I sought out his advice because I saw him present at the convention, the United Soccer Coaches convention years ago on implementing a long-term athlete development model using his four pillars Um, And I got to know Bill uh, remotely had conversations with him and really kind of shaped and influenced how I help train and develop soccer players, but also just athletes in general. So I was fortunate enough um, through the experiences with that club of building the program to get hooked up with uh, U.S. soccer through some old contacts and ended up working with the national teams, the youth national teams doing sports science, kind of the, the exercise fizz whole physical pillar if you will Um, yeah um and that led to a number of other opportunities uh one working at the philadelphia union academy with bill alongside bill under bill uh every day learning from him uh but also being able to have the room to grow and implement new ideas so unbelievable experience really kind of a in many ways kind of a capstone opportunity for me to spend every day with him and um and work in one of the best Academy environments in the country. And, uh, and then the last year and a half, I've been with the Colorado Rapids Academy doing essentially a similar model, a similar program, uh, with less, uh, less resources as far as a facility is concerned, doing everything outside, doing everything, everything remote. So,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, and then along the way, I, I started my own company consulting, uh, and just kind of saying like, look, I, I think I can do some things on my own and help guide coaches. Um, and be really specific with their needs, so it 's been it 's been a very uh, meandering journey uh, one that 's never going to stop until i'm i 'm down and mm-hmm. uh, and I think it's it 's allowed me to connect with people that maybe i, ha- I wouldn 't have connected before, and it 's also one of those where I think people see it and go, "Wow, I wish I could be in that environment, uh, but know that it also comes at a cost a mm-hmm. social cost uh, an economic cost. Um, a lot of late nights, uh, a lot of hours away from a family and, you know, eventually I'm starting to look at it going, okay, what's the, what's the end game here, uh, besides being down, if you will. And I would just say that the journey for anybody out there that's trying to look at it and say, uh, where are they headed? Where are they going? You're going to need help along the way. And along the way, don't lose track of having fun,
1: because mm-hmm.
2: if you're not going
0: to have fun, then then don't don't do it. Absolutely. That makes sense. You have a unique insight in that you were um, on your journey in strength, condition and sports science, but you're also um, an assistant coach for men's soccer at the college, collegiate level. Is that right?
2: Yeah. So I, I really fortunate. Um, I, I wrote an email to a gentleman named Horst Richardson, who on the coaching side influenced me more than any other person uh he ended up coaching at colorado college for 50 years five zero he was a professor of german for for 42 or 43 of those years uh but he's also the head men's soccer coach and i wrote an email to him out of the blue because i was living in colorado springs at the time uh, working for the u.s anti-doping agency or usada mm-hmm. in athlete education and i said hey i'm, I'm starting to coach soccer again uh, I want to get back into it. I have a background. Would you be willing to meet with me? And so we met for a coffee one day. And, and I think mainly because I have a German last name. Uh, there was a huge uh, connection Some there. Some respect there. Yeah. Some respect, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. and I think, you know, and the more I've learned about it, the more the Germans really do stick together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he took a chance on me. And and that was December of six Um, and I stayed with Horse for seven, well, six fall seasons, seven years. Um, had a great time, really got mentored and um because of my background in fitness, I ended up doing all the fitness programming and uh creatization things and -hmm. and really kind of um went on that journey and then spent three years with Tony McCall at Regis, which is a division two school in Denver, when I transitioned to the youth club up in Boulder. So yeah, nine, nine fall seasons in college soccer. um, and i do i do think that's one of the unique things kevin is is being able to blend kind of being a an assistant college coach being a head coach director of coaching while still also understanding and and working in sports science
0: yeah that's a pretty unique position i remember when i was a grad assistant in strength conditioning um one of my schools that i worked at and um i played soccer myself in college but the head strength conditioning coach said um I was trying to figure out a schedule where I could kind of help out with soccer a little bit on the actual soccer side of things, not strength and condition. And he had said at the time, well, you better choose one, you know, you can't do them both. And uh, I ended up going with strength and conditioning, but it can be really difficult to try and blend those two together with, but it seems like you've done a really good job. Um, when you were first kind of starting out at the university level, was it always a case that you wanted to work in soccer Um Did you play growing up or was it just a case of here, here we go. This first jobs in soccer, you know, I'm going to see how it goes.
2: I grew up playing, playing soccer, uh, four years old. You know, I, I played pretty much my whole life, but I was a multi-sport athlete and I, uh, so soccer wasn't my, it was probably the sport I was the best at when I was younger. Uh, but my parents were really big believers in giving me multiple opportunities to experience different sports, different, different friends, uh, and so that was really influential on on where I'm at today because I'm a huge proponent of multi-sport athletes. Uh, I really want young children to participate in multiple sports, experience different uh, avenues for their potential. And so soccer was one of those that I was always drawn to, but it wasn't until a climbing trip, uh, 2002, where I went to Aconcagua down in Argentina, uh, was able to summit. You know, it's the highest mountain in the Western Hemisphere. Wow. And I, coming down off that mountain, we, we, so we, we spent basically 15 days on the mountain doing double carries on the backside of it. And then we summited, uh, which was was really tough. It was a tough mountain. And on the way down, I just kind of had this epiphany that I think I want to get back into soccer. Like, I, I mean, I love climbing and I continue to be in the outdoors. But I just said I think I want to make soccer my full-time gig. How do I how do I do that? And um, and that was kind of the beginning of of spending, you know, the last eighteen years more or less in soccer.
0: Mm-hmm. Excellent. Um, now you've talked a little bit already about working with youth athletes and having a long-term um, athletic development plan. Um specifically, we're going to discuss um, joy of elite youth athletes. I guess first off, how would you define joy or or what does it mean for you personally and then for the kids as well
2: i I kind of anticipated you might ask that question and i've I've thought a lot about it because you know sometimes when myself or other people bring up a topic, you know it's like, well, what do you mean by that right <laughs> and uh, I, to me, joy seems to be an inherent state of Almost an, an inherent state of flow, with a smile, mm-hmm. or with a laugh, so that they're they're participating in whatever they're doing, and it's unconscious. It's an unconscious flow of enjoyment, of of fun, of laughter, of not feeling pressure or stress, or maybe it's there, but it's superseded by the afferent feedback of uh, really just having a, a nice time.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: and so when I look at when I look at youth participating I say "Well, okay who's laughing who's smiling who's who's got a nice rhythm to their body uh who's moving well today who seems to be in an almost unconscious state of just being very present
1: Mm,
0: that makes sense you know I think we're on the same page with that um I remember in grad school I was taking a recreation class and um I'm not gonna pronounce the last name correctly. I gotta put it in the show notes, but um highly something like that, talks about flow state and almost word for word is what you said, um, being completely absorbed in an activity, especially an activity that involves creative abilities. And then the last one is um during this optimal exercise, they feel strong alert in effortless control, unself conscious and at the peak of their abilities. So I think you nailed it there. That's great. Oh,
2: that's I had I haven't heard that before. Mm-hmm. Uh and I didn't do any I I haven't like looked it up or anything. It's just my own uh experience based practice of having worked uh in the environment. Yeah, uh, that's great.
0: Yeah. That makes sense. Um flow state theory is um is the the idea behind it. Um but kind of before we get into that in a little bit more detail, um Why is it lacking? Is it coming from the top, um, from leagues, or is it coming from parents or coaches or a combination of everything?
2: I would say everything. The, the, The shift that I think we all are aware of in the last 10 years has been driven primarily through ego. And that ego continues to drive tournaments drives dollars it drives um, separation or stratification of talent uh, based upon a perception that may or may not be correct of someone's ability at that any given moment and we all know the surveys that are out there that say you know kids children get into sport because they want to have fun they want to have fun with their friends yes, they want to challenge themselves, they want to continue to grow. And I think that while that is the survey, those are the survey results, and I think those are widely known and widely accepted, there isn't seem to be a organizational influence, at least in our sport, enough to make it a policy or make it a protocol that um, fun is like at the number one top of every club soccer's uh, value, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, it's uh, if you were to go around and take a survey of the club organizations and say, why do you exist? Is the word fun anywhere in there? Is it in their mission statement? Is it in their purpose? And it's not, I mean, my guess is that the majority of them, it's not. And my guess is that it's about development. And that's fun is somewhere almost implied rather than intently stated. And so, you know, I think there are there are uh the considerations of the parental influence of trying to keep up with the Joneses. Uh there are the the expectations of society that say, well, if you want to be the best of the best, then you need to do one sport and you need to do it for a long period of time and yada yada. And so I think it's I think we have to give the game back to the kids we have to give the game back to the youth and there's multiple entities and organizations out there working hard to make that happen Kevin uh there's there's actually quite a few um and there is there are efforts in certain other sports from governing bodies to say this is this is a major factor and we're going to make it happen so um but at the end of the day what's happening is is money and uh and policy
0: based out of fear uh I think Drives decision making. Mm. Um, there, we know there is more than one organization, but I work um, as a soccer official, and I've, I've worked up to Division One level in high school, middle school, all that kind of stuff um, through North Carolina, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. But um, to me, one of the biggest downfalls is the the ranking system. I know we love it in America, but got soccer has a, I think, a lot to answer for when um you know you get kids going out just trying to win tournaments just for the sake of points on a leaderboard on an online website, you know.
2: When I was with a youth club and I was a director of coaching, it got soccer was influencing things. And I, I just ignored it the entire time. And I thought it was trash. And I think it is trash um, to be able to rank teams. I understand from a, from a tournament standpoint, you want to be able to understand what the level of teams are coming in. So how do you do that without some sort of ranking system? Right. So that's, and in many ways, that's the that's the juggernaut of it. Um, then the question becomes at what point does it matter? Uh, what age is it really important? Um, 10, 11, 12, I would argue no. Uh, 13, 14, you know, kids are going through their ghost spurts. There's all kinds of developmental issues. Rankings are going to be all over the place. And then they come out of it, and it maybe makes more sense when we're talking about 16, 17 plus. Um, but prior to that, I think it's, it's totally a waste of time.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, just on a personal level, do you have difficulty with trying to sell joy or sell fun to parents, um, when they're um looking at potentially which club to play with or which team, um, things like that? Or are, are most parents pretty receptive to it?
2: No, I think parents are receptive to it because they want that for themselves. I think in many ways, parents want to experience joy in their lives and they try to do that through their children, which is why, and perhaps parents sign their kids up for youth sports, uh, rather than the parents themselves finding avenues for joy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so we kind of discuss what we're doing wrong. Um, what can we do better, whether it's as an individual, maybe a parent coach or somebody working at even the development academy level right up to the top? Um, what can? We, what are some steps we can do to to help prosper kind of youth sport and specifically with our soccer players?
2: There, there are so many uh, avenues, Kevin, and I don't have a hierarchy to this answer, meaning I don't prioritize one or the other. I think they're mm-hmm. all relatively important. One of the things that I've experienced, not only in the development Academy level uh, from an, two MLS teams, uh, And having been in seeing, you know, all the development academy showcases, which is now MLS next, right?
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, Make sure we're in the current context. How many coaches and parents listen to the players? And when I mean, listen, like really listen. And so I kind of came up with this idea of listen to win. So, and win the moment, win the activity, win, not necessarily win the game or be at the top of the rankings, To be 12-0, and but to win the development and win the opportunity to inspire children beyond the moment and time in which you're coaching them. Because we know, at least in soccer, uh, children tend to be with a coach for one to two years in a club environment, and then they go to the next coach. Um, There's rarely a situation, I mean, I think it's out there, but it's rare that a a player will stay with the same club coach for seven years. Mm -hmm. Where that happened perhaps before mega clubs uh, came into the existence. And so the idea of listening to the children is to, how do we create a platform within their club environment for players to influence decision-making? So you could come up with a student athlete council, which you see at the NCAA level. Uh, You see it in a professional level, right? Uh, The the whole bargaining situation that's delayed the start of the MLS season.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh,
2: There's an athlete voice in there. So where's the athlete voice in youth club soccer and how do you create an environment where it can be influence policy, decision-making and direction of the club. And so I would really advocate uh, an opportunity because you see it in high schools where students are given leadership opportunities through, you know, student uh, athlete council, get one for your club, start one for your club. So that's the first thing is being able to listen to the athletes and listen to win. The second thing is create uh, a weekly time where there's not organized, structured coaching. There might be an organized, structured practice time, but it's an unstructured opportunity for them to play Frisbee, ultimate Frisbee, play handball, play netball, play ping pong, um, you know, come up with their own small sided game activities, let them create the rules. Uh, and it's yes, you want to have supervision, you want to make sure no one gets injured, etc. Mm-hmm. But to allow them the freedom to come up with their games, and I think that's like at the Philadelphia Union, the kids that were at the school would train in the morning at the YSC Academy, they would train in the morning before they go to school and then come back and train. And one of the things we were really big in, and this is where Bill influenced, was you needed to have uh, coordinated competitive games, tag, right? Handball. Maybe we're going to play badminton. Uh, I'm a big believer in obstacle course racing uh, for kids.
0: Kind of ties in your uh, background as well. That's
2: great. Totally, totally. Mm -hmm. So what, like, like just as a total tangent, but basically I would show up and I would put out like 20 different pieces of equipment. You know, maybe there's five balls, a couple of tennis rackets, a couple of noodles, uh, some fit balls, a football, a rugby ball. Um, some hoops. And I'd say, you guys have a half hour, come up with your own game, your own rules. See ya. And I would stand on the side and watch them facilitate problem solve. I mean, just all kinds of things that parents want their kids to explore. It's not that hard to create that environment. So clubs could you do that once a week in a training session for a half hour to 45 minutes? So, you know, the teams that are training four days a week, have them do it. The other thing is uh, during the most precious time from an SNC standpoint, uh, specifically in an academy environment, is the warm-up and the activation. And it's a missed opportunity to do strength work, to do coordination games, to get their the neurological system firing, to to really prime the athlete for the demands of the game and prepare them and do it in a fun multi-directional uh with intensity not so casual and loosey-goosey that you know the the return on it isn't that they actually get their heart rate up Mm -hmm. (laughs) they need their heart rate to get up and so i feel like one of the things i've done pretty well in my career is to create an environment during the warm-up where it's like you're with the performance coach right so if i'm the performance coach and i walk in rapids okay you know you 17 you got them for 15 minutes right we set up that schedule every 15 minutes I've got them. So for five to six minutes of that, we are doing fun, total like hopscotch competitions with U 17 Academy guys Mm -hmm. that are like falling down because they're, they think they're coordinated and then we ask them to do something rhythmic and they fall down. Mm -hmm. But then there's guys that get, it's competitive. So they're going to go all out. Um, So those are three really quick areas that I think of is to to, um, listen to win, listen to the athletes to win the moment, um, create time during the warmups for them to enjoy and have fun again. Uh, and then create an environment. It's almost like a policy. Like we will do uh, an unstructured free play game as part of our training week. And, mm-hmm. you know, it takes some navigation as to how to build that in. Uh, but that's those are three quick things the, the the fourth thing that i would offer is to commit to doing it meaning it's going to be part of a policy and because parents want to pay attention, parents pay attention in the youth environment to policy uh and they sh- if they're not they should because if a club says they're going to do it you can hold them accountable to doing it and so a club needs to commit to doing it because they believe in that long-term athlete development plan
0: mm-hmm. i don't think most clubs even have a mission statement or have core values really do it it seems like a lot of parents just weigh the the financial cost of or maybe the location of the team and the from what i've seen in my experience there's no real big picture like you're saying for um for structure and uh having a vision for a club
2: well, if, if that is true, Kevin, and I can't, I can't tell you if that's true or not, but if it is true, that's a really, that's a huge miss.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And it, quite frankly, that would be one of the main things I would do as a parent. What's your mission as a club? What's your philosophy as a club? What's your philosophy in coaching 12 year old boys and girls? Um, you know, what happens in certain situations? What's your policy on this and that? And a club should be transparent. A mm-hmm. club should be totally transparent, especially the nonprofit clubs. They have an obligation as a 501c3 to be able to put their policies in a place where people have access to the board of directors meetings, agenda items should all be on the website and accessible.
0: Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So kind of reading in between the lines, and you did mention it a little bit, one of the main philosophies is such as to have that idea of anti-structure almost within the warm up or within certain practices. Um, how how do you go about doing that on a day-to-day basis? Um, because I'm sure it's more work on a coach's end, right? To try and get some creative ideas and and just have that time um each session or each week.
2: I applaud coaches right now in the given the pandemic and, and COVID situation, and I applaud the amount of effort I saw at firsthand with the Colorado Rapids coaches to go from full team training. Inner squad scrimmages to prepare for matches, to all of a sudden, you know, having to maybe shut down or to come back and to be in small group training with 10 players, half of a field, uh, social distancing, the whole bit. It's been unbelievably taxing on coaches, and you have to give them credit because they have done a remarkable job from what I've seen of every day coming up with a different lesson plan that's stimulating and exciting for the players that is still connected to their game model, still connected to the periodization, still connected to their tactical and technical ideas. It's it's unbelievably working for those that work for those that are really doing it well and consistently. And at the same time the coaches need a break. Like they would almost love to just turn it into a session over to a performance coach and say, okay, you've got them for 45 minutes. thank oh I can sit back and relax <laughs> for a little bit.
0: Of course, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. So I mean I, I it's been it's been a grueling year for coaches to be able to come up with different lesson plans. And I know that's been a lot of talk. There's a structure that I always work with uh, for all the activations and warm ups, no matter the level, even if it's eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds, it just means that the emphasis of the key point. So let's call it stability, for example, Mm -hmm. um, being able to land after a jump or, or um, being able to, hold somebody off in a 1v1. The coaching cues are going to be different, right? So the the 8-year-old, the 10-year-old versus the 17-year-old, the coaching cue is going to be different because you know, I might be starting out with a younger player who may not know me and may not know the the cue I want to give them and what that means. So I have to do more demonstrations. Whereas the older player, maybe it's one or two uh, analogies and they've got it and they go. Um, and analogies are probably the best thing for people anyway uh, mm-hmm. to be able to look at a picture and, and do it. And so the structure is still the same, but then within that, I look at the periodization of not just the, the physical periodization, but everything. And you say, okay, you know what? We need to ramp up the intensity on this day. How are we going to do that with a stability type exercise here? Okay, so do I have to do less reps or more reps? Do I have to involve contact? Do I need a ball or no ball? And and modify like any coach would do and adapt based upon where they're at in any given moment.
0: Awesome. So having that template or that philosophy does make your decision-making day to day a little bit easier.
2: Totally. That's exactly it, Kevin. In Mm -hmm. many ways it eliminates extra work because there's a template. There's a template that has a decision-making tree and, and that, that just eliminates certain choices, right? Okay. If it's a match day minus one, okay, we're not doing these, these four things. Uh, so it's a menu, but, but having that menu, and that's really what I learned from Bill, um, prior to me going to the union. But then when I got to the union, it was just became embedded, right? This was the menu of options that are going to develop athletes, uh, to develop the robustness, reduce the risk of injury. And now you just modify
0: and move around the exercises, uh, based upon where you're at in the year. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Can you talk a little bit about just a big picture overview of what an actual development academy is and uh, how many kids you might be working with on a day-to-day basis. Um, obviously, it depends on which club you're at. Not all are the same. Um, but for our listeners that might be like, what's an academy? Um, can you explain that a little bit?
2: Sure. And, and it, should be, it should be noted that, you know, in 2007, when U.S. Soccer started the, the U.S. Development Academy, uh, you know, right now it's called MLS Next. Uh, for those that may not be as familiar, it's called MLS Next. And there are MLS academies, and then there are non MLS academies that are all part of the MLS Next League. And I think it will continue to grow. And obviously, on the girls' side, the girls have the Girls Academy, which is essentially when the U.S. Soccer's Development Academy went away for boys and girls. Uh, another group of uh, folks picked up the Girls Academy, which, from what I understand, is doing really well, and, and people are excited about it.
0: Mm-hmm. That transition was just in the last uh, six to nine months, if I'm correct. correct.
2: Yeah, it's fairly recent, and, and Leslie Gallimore, I think, is the commissioner for it, and uh, and I know a couple of people on on like the technical committee for it. And I think they're, from what everything I've seen and read, that their hearts and minds are in the right place for mm-hmm. for growing it. And um, I'm curious to see how it will develop. But back to your question, which is the two the two MLS environments I worked in, which was the Union and the the Rapids, are, are even though they're MLS academies, they're still very different. In part, just because of uh, the ownership groups, and and they're different because of the structure of the facilities that they currently have, what they aspire to have, and then also just the the philosophy of. Um, what the overall goal is. And that changed recently within the union when they had a new sporting director came in and, and changed the whole style of play. But from a day-to-day standpoint, uh, if the Academy has like in my experience, the 12s through the 19s. So you're looking at about 130 um, young, young, young kids. Um, both environments had players that are not from the local market. So you had to have residency or housing or host families. Both are environments where players are um, taken care of in the sense that they don't have a financial obligation, maybe outside of some initial really low cost. But generally speaking, you want to make it you want to make there's no barrier to entry. Uh, And that's really what the expectation of the MLS teams should be is that there's no, no barrier to entry that any player who's talented enough should be able to get in. Mm-hmm. Uh, the players come from all kinds of socioeconomic backgrounds, so there's a wonderful diversity, and it should be applauded. And um, In many ways, it should be leveraged um, and, and hopefully reflected down the road within the national team pipelines or the, the first team that they're striving for. Uh, typically training four days a week, if not upwards of six to eight, depending upon that structure um so there's an opportunity to train perhaps in the morning go to school in the middle of the day come back in the evening there's a real big opportunity to individualize training and programming Um, especially recently when you have only 10 players on a half of a field you can really individualize things and uh, give players time to do things on their own Uh, there's a big emphasis on looking at the holistic so when you talk about nutrition recovery sleep um, personal habits, academics. There's a real emphasis on developing the whole person.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then when they they really enter that that 17 phase, it's a, there's an eye on becoming a professional player. Okay. The last thing I'll say is, uh, it's been my experience, and in both environments, have been fantastic in this way. Is that they hire the right coaches for the right ages. Uh, they really are paying attention to who those educators are that understand the developmental characteristics of players at the various stages. Um, and if they don't, then it's a, it's a miss uh, because then you end up having turnover of players coming in and out.
0: That makes sense. Got it. Um, can you talk about your role with First Beat? Um, just taken away from actual... Well, I wouldn't say taken away from strength and conditioning, but there is that aspect of uh sports science um, so can you discuss um what exactly first beat is and and some of the products or services you have out there
2: sure yeah kevin so uh i I really believe in looking at the athlete health and wellness first and foremost, so like it kind of goes back to joy, right? is somebody happy are they excited to be there? Uh, what's their mental state? Are they, are they excited to participate in soccer? Are they going to have joy with what they're doing? And that can lend itself to how well they participate in that day's activities. And one of the things I started going to the convention and I looked around and I said, man, there's not enough dialogue on, uh, technology and how to support athletes overall wellness. And so several years ago, uh, I was lucky enough and I'm fortunate enough to be like a presenter at the convention. Uh, and so I started talking about conditioning and what that would look like. And people still kind of have this question of overall, like, how do you train fitness and soccer? And the reality is, as you play soccer. Uh, and one of the things that I, I kept thinking about regarding exercise science was this internal response, this internal load. What's the internal, what, are, what is somebody holding on to? Or what is somebody releasing internally? Uh, not just through their heart, but through their chemicals, et cetera. And so I had the fortunate opportunity to use First Beat. And it's a it's it's essentially as a software company that specializes in HRV. So we use every beat to capture the internal load response to training. And at the convention, what we did was we put heart rate monitors on an older team. We didn't use real names and we put it up on the screen. And then I would run as, I ran a session, one V ones, two V twos, three V ones, transition type activities. And I could show the heart rates of the players live and educate the coaches about the internal response, because we know the game is played at 85% max heart rate. We know players need a basically at 70% VO2 max. And so, first speed, what it does is it captures the internal load. We use software to be able to show real time data, and it's as accurate and reliable as it gets. And so, it allows coaches in real time to understand are they training at the intensity that was scheduled or planned for that day, or at game pace, at game speed? And if not, then maybe there's a question to be asked. Is that player in the right spot? Uh, Do I need to coach them in a different way? Are they working as hard as they can? Can they give more? And then how well do they recover? How quickly does their heart rate calm down so that they can then go do the next action with maximum intensity again? And so we offer a lot of physiological metrics that can be used, not just in soccer, but other sports as well, Uh, rugby. Uh, basketball football you name it i mean we're we're all over the world we're in thousands of teams Mm -hmm. some of the top teams in the world use our system on a daily basis um really to capture the understanding of how a player's doing
0: internally excellent now is there an education component or aspect with that service because um You know, in my experience, it's been some coaches um, know what periodization is, know philosophy, understand some science. And then you have some other coaches that, you know, can't even turn on a laptop, for example. So um, what has the reception been so far in in the sports setting for you?
2: Well, I I feel really fortunate because the, the position, and this is what I was always interested in, is it allows me to connect to multiple sports. So I've been talking to tennis coaches, baseball coaches, uh, football, American football coaches, uh, handball, fitness trainers—like just you name it. Cycling coaches, any sport, right? And it allows me to to start to understand their needs and their demands. And as performance coaches, uh, I think that we have to be generalists. Like I don't, I don't think it's—you need to understand knowledge. You have to have the base knowledge of information. And then how you apply those skills subjectively, I think, become much better when you work in multiple sports or you have the understanding of multiple sports. And so some coaches, like if I'm talking to the Kansas City Royals, I don't necessarily need to educate them on performance science there yeah, i
0: know john we actually had a, a skype conversation with him a couple of years back and he's got to figure it out
2: <laughs> yeah john's brilliant john's yeah. great and then and so john and i actually you know uh kansas city royals brought on first beat this okay. last winter i had a great conversation with john and and we're really excited to see you know how he utilizes the data mm-hmm. uh, and how he grows it over time awesome. and so with him, there's no education really needed. It might be just more on the tech side, like how does certain things connect to, to devices, but uh, they've got it figured out and they're running. It's awesome. Whereas then perhaps maybe on a youth coach, it's, well, what's trim? What's training impulse? What is HRV? And what does it matter if somebody's, you know, at 90% of their max for 30 minutes of a training session rather than 10, uh, what are the concerns? And so there's a huge spectrum, right, of, of education. And I think that that's one of the neat things that I bring to the company is I've been a coach for 15, 18 years, and I can talk in coach terms, not in a sales type role, mm-hmm. uh, in the sense that I'm talking to them as a human and connect with them as a human to find out their needs. So there's a, there has to be an educational component of what we do always.
0: Awesome. That makes sense. And then last question, James, just to finish up, are there any go-to resources for maybe it's a parent or a club soccer coach that's not working full time about maybe even practice planning structure or just um, some activities to to keep that fun element in training?
2: Yeah, I would, I would offer, there's a couple of organizations and one of them is called changing the game project, with John O'Sullivan, he's been around for a number of years now. Um, he has a tr- he has a podcast, uh, Way of Champions podcast, and he interviews people from all kinds of disciplines. And I think it's a fantastic resource for parents. I think initially John started out trying to go after coaches, but I would encourage parents to listen to his podcast. John O has done some fantastic work. The second thing is uh, for the love of the game. Uh, for the Love of the Game is a is a unique enterprise that's really trying to give the game back to the kids. And they've got a lot of great resources for organizations, coaches, and parents on how to create a athlete-centered environment. Um, the other resources I would look at, uh, there's a coaching collective. The coaching collective is an outside consulting group that could come into a youth club and help them understand kind of where they're at and their developing their philosophy of processes as far as training activities go there has to be every youth club has a parent that's connected to a school probably as a PE teacher
0: yeah that makes sense
2: I really really think that getting PE teachers involved in a youth sport uh, youth sporting club would be a fantastic avenue um PE teachers you know work tirelessly to come up with different games um and then I can also uh I can send you perhaps maybe a couple of links afterwards that you could put in your show notes um once I once I dig them up and then the last thing is is coaches themselves they already have the power of creativity in them whether they choose to tap into it or not is something that they have to start to investigate a little bit more because maybe they're afraid to deviate from the club curriculum. Mm-hmm. Well, you can still find creative ways to elicit a fun response from players during the warm-up that's maybe a slightly outside the curriculum of the warm-up. So for instance, using tennis balls has been like one of the greatest discoveries for me. Ping pong balls and because discover- you talk about hand-eye coordination and bouncing in different directions tennis balls and ping pong balls during an activation have been one of the best things I've ever done because um, we can get kids on their knees and crawl, et cetera. so I'm going off on a tangent, Kevin, I know, but I get excited about it right I'm really passionate about absolutely coaches already have that creativity it's allowing themselves the freedom to do it to try it, and I really just implore upon those listeners out there that work in the youth environment to try something during the warm up obviously safe, um, concerned for kids running into each other and so on, but encourage them to try and tap into their own creativity that they already have.
0: Excellent. James, this has been great. I appreciate you coming on. Um, this has kind of been the first topic that hasn't been um, specifically strength-based, um, but I love your perspectives. I appreciate it. Thank you.
2: Yeah, thank you, Kevin. I appreciate your time this morning. and. Uh...